Thanks for joining Impact Boom. On this episode... Right now, my work is transformed into working with the tourism sector, which was decimated, obviously, globally with COVID. Mm. And what we're telling them is that the one place that you can actually increase your revenue exponentially is to look at accessible tourism because it's like a billion dollar industry, right? And if you can offer something that your competitor can't offer, then you're getting that whole market share of those individuals. Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 392 of Impact Boom. My name's Indio Miles and I'm passionate about communicating the initiatives and enterprises causing sustainable and positive change globally. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Janice Rieger. Dr. Janice Rieger is Associate Professor in the School of Architecture and Built Environment. Queensland University of Technology, Australia. She is an award-winning researcher, educator, curator, and designer with expertise in inclusive design and disability research. Dr. Riga has been advocating for people with disabilities for over 25 years and has been awarded an International Universal Design Award, two Australian Good Design Awards, a Mayor's Access Recognition Award, and a state-level disability award for her leadership in promoting inclusion globally. She has recently been appointed as a fellow of the Queensland Academy of Arts and Sciences, held appointments to international design juries, disability congress committees, scientific advisory boards, and was recently invited to be the first international member of the European Institute for Design and Disability. Dr. Riga's work in creating cultures of inclusion has led to code, policy, curriculum, and legislative changes in Australia, North America, and Europe. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing how built environments have historically excluded certain communities from accessing them, and the opportunity that this creates to critically analyze and redesign the world that we live in. Dr. Riga, thank you very much for joining us today. It's really exciting to have you here. Thanks, India. My pleasure for chatting today. Excellent. So to start off, could you please share a bit about your background and then what led to your work in inclusive design in academia? My pleasure. Unlike most people who aren't sure what they're going to be when they grow up, I, from a very young age, probably around the age of five or six, knew that I was going to be a designer those little yearbooks that we have to put in what we did that year and what we wanted to do when we grew up. I always put interior designer from a very young age. In my teenage years, I was obsessed with fashion magazines and style magazines and the real aesthetics and beauty of design. I would rearrange my room constantly and we were quite poor. I came from a quite a poor family and so my mum and I on the weekends to do something fun that was free, we would visit show homes. 
Mm. From a very young age, I was really quite obsessed with high-end residential design. And I thought that I would end up being a residential interior designer for very high-end homes. And interestingly, throughout my life, I have gone back and done that as part of my practice. But I think that throughout my university career, I became a little disillusioned about interior design and this idea of designing for the wealthy and designing these kind of big mansions. In many ways, it's interesting because it didn't seem to be the path that I was supposed to travel. So Mm. I decided to go study interior design at the Faculty of Architecture in the University of Manitoba in Canada. It was the only program that was a full four-year Bachelor's of Interior Design. So I was very excited to move interstate by myself to a state in a city I had never been to before. The first project I got was in residential design, but I got assigned a senior's housing complex. And I was like, this is not fun. This is not sexy. (laughs) And then from there on, we did this really cool abstracted model project. And my client was bipolar. And Mm. then I happened to get a job in the summer that first year working for a local design firm that actually designed the most accessible and most sustainable home in Canada at the time. So even though I had this pathway marked out, I was constantly taking the other road or shifting in the other direction. And then I happened upon this door in the basement, actually, at the Faculty of Architecture, and it was called the Canadian Institute for Barrier-Free Design. And I had no idea what barrier-free design was at the time. And so I wandered in and realized that there was a whole different side of design in looking at creating accessible environments and inclusion and working with people with disabilities. So it was from that first year that I started to shift directions and figure out what I wanted to do. And, you know, 25 years later, here I am doing that. Wow. It's a really fabulous progression that you made in there. And you can see clearly that deep rooted passion in the field, but then also how that's transitioned into creating purpose and accessibility into these environments as well, that you love so much. And in one of your current roles at the moment, you're an associate professor in the School of Architecture and Built Environment at the Queensland University of Technology. So can you please share a bit about what your research has focused on and any current projects that you're involved in? Absolutely. So interestingly, at some point, I didn't understand the value system that was underlying the work I was doing. And people would always ask me, why do you do what you do? Why are you such a passionate advocate for people with disabilities? And I would say, I don't know why. And then I was getting interviewed with a friend of mine who was blind. And he said to me, did you have anyone in your family that had a disability? And I said, no. And then I said, oh, wait a minute. My grandmother was blind. And I lived with my grandmother for a good part of my life, as well as traveled, you know, across Canada with her as her companion. And when I really started to reflect on that experience, I realized that my grandma and I were out of the box tinkerers. Mm -hmm. Her home environment was not designed for her abilities and obviously that she was blind. And so her and I would figure out designerly ways to redo her environment, to make it accessible, to alphabetize her soup cans. And it always seemed to end up with red 
nail polish not that we were painting our nails at all but you know because she couldn't see most of the dials on her washing machine and her microwave and her stove and so we took red nail polish and put it at the 32nd mark and whatever she needed to do to maintain her independence so I had forgotten those early formative years of co-designing even before we knew what co-design was with my grandmother to make and adapt her home environment to be accessible to her and I think because I didn't see her as being disabled, I saw her as having these super abilities. It never occurred to me that was also the foundation of which I work today. And so my work begins to address these three decades of pleas to make our environments accessible. And it provides new innovative methods and methodologies for practitioners, researchers, and students. I'm looking at this way to create best practice for design for all and to promote this humanizing design globally in design and design education and to create this catalyst for change. Now, getting back to your question in regards to what I'm doing now, this road has been very long and windy and hilly. And I actually spent 14 years in university mm-hmm. and several different degrees getting to where I am today. Now, my shift has been towards this idea of justice, spatial justice and social justice, and that people have a human right or just to access. A lot of the work I'm doing now is coming from a justice lens and working with the Center for Justice, actually, in the design lab at QT. And I'm working on, for instance, a project where we're working with a disability service provider and designing accessible housing for people with Prada-Willi syndrome, which is a very complex disabling condition. That's at Moreton Bay. I'm working on two Australian Research Council grants now, one to create the first National Disability Arts Archive in Mm. Australia. Even though my work dabbles in the arts, I'm usually brought in as the designer or the co-designer to create better access, and in this case, access to an archive and to create best practice in that. And Most recently, I was awarded an Australia Research Council fellowship. And so for the next three and a half years, I get to dabble in my own research and really look at a particular sector, and in this case, the museum and gallery sector across Australia, to create a toolkit for them to create better access and inclusion. So I wouldn't say that I work only in one sector or only with one industry. I would say that because I create cultures of inclusion, I can work with multiple communities in various spaces, whether globally or locally, in architecture, in urban design, museums, exhibitions, multisensorial work. And so that's the direction my work is going into now. Wow. It's a really diverse range of projects that you get to be involved in within that area of accessibility and inclusion as well. And it's just fabulous to look at what you're researching and the work that you're doing and I think that within preparing for this interview as well and looking into where your focus has been in the past as well, there was that big realisation I had that I don't have much of an understanding of the historical context of why you do the work that you do. So just quickly, would you be able to provide a bit of a background perhaps on how has the design of our infrastructure historically excluded communities from its use and how severely has that been felt by these communities? I think that people think in the last couple of decades that it has gotten significantly better. 
And I would say for someone who's been doing this for almost three decades, obviously we've seen a bit of a shift towards more inclusive design and more accessible Mm. environments, but we really haven't gone as far as we could. And it feels like as soon as we make changes in one space or with one community, then they impact another community. It's interesting because most recently I got the opportunity to redesign the spatial histories or the architectural design history unit for 550 first year students in my faculty. I wanted to flip this understanding of what we come to understand the history of design and the history of spatial design. Mm -hmm. And it's often this Western canon, often these star architects, often we look at exemplars. Design is always based on exemplars. And I thought, why aren't we looking at the untold stories, the untold histories? And so I flipped the entire curriculum on its head to talk about ableist architecture, to talk about that segregation and looking at the United States in particular, the segregation that we saw early in the 1900s in terms of black and white entrances, places where only people who are white could go to. We know the famous bus as well that showed segregation, but we still have that segregation today. It's still manifested in the built environment and still exclusionary. And gendered spaces as well. Even since the early Victorian times, we looked at the home and these gendered rooms and these gendered spaces Mm -hmm. that were created. And now we're talking about the gender problems with toilets. So it's not like anything in some ways has changed or really improved in terms of creating better access and inclusion. We've made small steps in the right direction, but we still have a very long way to go. We're starting to look at gender neutral toilets and things like that. So I think more than anything, I became an educator rather than a practitioner because I continued to see the inequities in the built environment and continued to work with builders, architects and designers who did not understand the importance of creating just access to a public building, for instance. You put stairs in and all of a sudden you're excluding people. And this idea that people aren't necessarily disabled, it's actually their environments that are disabling. And so for me, it was my passion to try to re-educate designers and practitioners to start to think about ableist architecture and to start to really be critical of what they were designing and how exclusionary it was. Wow. It's really profound. A lot of the ideas that you've just shared there as well around that ableist architecture and as well that the environment is that disabling factor and that as architects, you have that opportunity to affect that and change that built environment to be more inclusive. But thank you so much for sharing that, Dr. Riga. That's absolutely fascinating. And if we're looking towards as well, the products and services, right? So not just architecture, but even businesses that are offering these products and services. Why should they consider inclusivity as a fundamental aspect of developing these offerings? The economic question always comes up when I work with builders and developers and architects. And when they say to me, if I'm trying to make this space more accessible for, let's say, people in wheelchairs, it takes up a considerable amount of square footage. And so all of a sudden my footprint is bumped out and all of a sudden my budget is bumped out. But what we've done and the myth busting that we've done in the industry globally for the last 10 years is to make people understand that actually 
designing for inclusion, designing to accommodate people with differing abilities does not cost any more money. In fact, what you are doing is creating not only just access, you know, and a human right that people have, but you are creating a bigger consumer base or a bigger business base. So for instance, you're a home developer, right? If you only designed homes that had stairs that were two-story homes that had five to six stairs to going up them, you're excluding the entire aging population, which as we know, the silver tsunami has hit us and it's significant. You're excluding anyone really maybe that has a child that has a pram that needs to get into the home. You're excluding anyone that uses a wheelchair or a walker or even someone who's temporarily able-bodied, like if they break their leg. When you try to have these conversations, there is a massive economic gain and benefit to creating for inclusion. And right now my work is transformed into working with the tourism sector, which was decimated obviously globally with COVID. What we're telling them is that the one place that you can actually increase your revenue exponentially is to look at accessible tourism because it's like a billion dollar industry. And if you can offer something that your competitor can't offer, then you're getting that whole market share of those individuals. One of the things I have came across, I would say probably since 2019, is this understanding of design for all, which is a bit different in Australia. And I've actually brought it to Australia because mostly in Australia, we talk about universal design or inclusive design. But this concept of design for all, which started and mostly is embedded into the European fabric, is really that if we design something well, and maybe we design something and co-design it with people with disabilities, it actually is designed for everyone. It's complex sometimes to try to think about designing for all, but it is possible. And it just requires designers to think outside of the box and be creative and inclusionary in the way that they're thinking about that. And I always tell my students, who are you including by the virtue of your design? Who are you excluding by the virtue of de your design? And is that okay? There is a huge economic advantage. <laughs> yeah, there's so many opportunities there that you've just identified for people as well who are looking into the space as well economically. There's so many uncaptured markets and there's so many places where people can create an impact as well as considering making a profit. So thank you so much there for sharing that, Dr. Riga. And as well, when I was looking into your work, at the moment, I saw that you currently are a chief investigator with the QUT Design Lab, and you're doing a lot of fascinating work within that. But I was just wondering if you were going to share some advice, what strategies do you and your colleagues apply to identify opportunities to effectively redesign built environments? Probably over the last five years specifically, my practice has become almost completely about co-design. I, in no way, shape, or form, think that I'm an expert in inclusion or universal design, right? I essentially am just a facilitator to help communities and designers come together to create better access and inclusion. And co-design is really at the foundation of what I do now. Because in the disability world, there's this statement, not about us, without us. So why would we be designing for people with disabilities or even culturally and linguistically diverse populations or Indigenous populations without the inclusion 
of their lived experience, of their embodiments, of their knowledge, of their perspectives. It's completely ridiculous to think that we would do that. And so what I've been doing is trying to inspire others to think about the necessity of co-design and the necessity of individuals' voices. I think for me, what has happened over through the years is, for instance, I've worked with large national museums all over the world. This one museum, the Canadian Museum for Human Rights in Canada, at the time was declared the most accessible museum in the world. And so I was like, oh, that is a great invitation for me to come and audit you for accessibility. And so I was the first researcher that went in there when they first opened their doors. And don't get me wrong, they had done some amazing things. They had designed some universal design technology, which was groundbreaking. And mm -hmm. I think that it involved user testing. But when I went in there to do a post-occupancy evaluation... And I took individuals with me who were blind or who were deaf or who had other disabilities. The technology was redundant. The technology was not intuitive and it was completely useless for them. So right. it hadn't maybe been co-designed, but definitely had not been evaluated post installation. And there's other things like people often, obviously they get excited sometimes and they start to create tactile maps and what people don't realize is the knowledge through vision is very different than the knowledge through touch. And so I've gone to places and they said to me, oh, Janice, we're really excited. We've made this tactile map of the institution for people who are blind. And so I say, okay. And I bring someone in that works with me who is blind and they run their hands across this tactile map. And they say to me, this is nonsensical. All they have done is to take a floor plan and extrude it into three dimensions that knowledge is knowledge for vision. It's not knowledge for the hand. Now, when I create tactile models or tactile maps or multisensorial work to be inclusive, I do it with people with disabilities. And every week, myths that I believe about 30 years in practice, I think, oh my gosh, I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, they just tell me, Janice, that's not the way we would do it. And doing audio description and uh, my friend Mark who was blind said to me for those of us that were born blind we don't understand middle perspective we have no sense of perspectile space so mm -hmm. when you say that in the foreground the background and the middle ground he's like what would a middle ground be I think my message would be you need to be working with the people that you're designing for and I know the process is longer possibly I know that it's very often not put into the budget but it's of absolute importance. Otherwise you're designing things that you think might be accessible and inclusive, but at the end of the day, they're very tokenistic and they aren't at all. Those partnerships are just are so key to so much of the work that you're doing as well. And if you're going to create something for a community that you're not a part of, then obviously there has to be that consultation, right? Absolutely. And this is, and I think this is from my work with the Q Design Lab, but also through my work with the Center for Justice is that there are some real champions doing co-design work in other areas. And the other thing we're starting to do is we're starting to incorporate creative methods as well. So mm. obviously when you work with people with disabilities, say they're blind, you can't exactly do a lot of visual mind mapping and cultural probes and the various you know, photo elicitation and those kinds of things. And so you have to think about people's abilities and how they can actually interact in the process. Mm. And so very often we do use creative methods. I've started to make films and I make animations and I do fiber work with fiber artists. And it just really depends on the community and what they want. 
And then what creative method we use to create cultures of inclusion together. Mm, 100% really key message there. And thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's invaluable advice for anyone who is looking to create something that is prioritizing inclusivity as a value. So thank you so much. And that's actually bringing us up near the end of our interview today, but I just have two quick questions to fire away and just to share some resources. So firstly, what inspiring projects or initiatives have you come across recently that are creating a positive social change? Oh, I'm so inspired by so much work that's happening at a global level. And just recently, I started to work with a scholar in Canada, Dr. Sitter, and she is actually creating a world-first multisensorial lab. She's creating a lab which has a smell station and a touch station and a, you know, a taste station thing mm. where we can start to work with different communities and understand the sensory ethnography in a way, and then the way that knowledge can be translated into design services, design products, design environments. Her co-design process that she uses, even though she's not a designer, actually, she comes from social work. So I find it fascinating when you see people doing co-design that aren't designers, because they don't have this, in some ways, a negative designer lens that we all come with for those of us that are designers, but they're very open to curiosity and to take risks. And she does this process of digital storytelling with vulnerable communities. And it's quite fascinating to me because I've never really seen digital storytelling done this way. Mm -hmm. And then the impact of that spreads out into the community. I'm bringing her in Australia to QT this year for us to start to do some really fun, playful work in multisensorial research and digital storytelling. Wow, that's a really interesting project there. And to finish off as well, what books or resources would you be able to recommend to our listeners? That's a tough one, you know. <laughs> First of all, as an academic, I rarely get time to read because I'm reading people's PhDs and, and all of these things. Oh, it's, please, it's... any foundational <laughs> academic literature as well, you're more than welcome to share that as well. Anything that will Absolutely. just help people understand the work you do more. For sure. I was just reminded of this book recently, actually, in a conversation with someone, but I tend to like old French literature and old French design books. And one of the ones that I've came across that actually was used as the foundation for the redesigning of my architectural history unit was a book from 1974 by George Perec, and it's called Species of Spaces. Try to say that really fast three times. <laughs> species of Spaces, Species of Spaces. And he talks about this really kind of poetic understanding of spatiality and the typologies of space. And he talks about this infraordinary. I'm always interested in not the extraordinary. And unlike that girl who wanted to design fancy, extraordinary McMansions, I'm now very fascinated with the mundane and the ordinary and the habitual aspects of everyday life. Mm. So if you haven't checked out that old book from 1974, and really all designers, but anyone really might find it fascinating. The other thing is, I would say the work of Yos Boys, from 2014, she's come up with a pretty great book, which talks about doing disability differently. And it's an alternate handbook on architecture. It's great for anyone in the built environment space to start to understand how we design differently from the way we've been taught to design architecture. Lastly, I have a book coming out in 2023, in July of this year. It encompasses two decades of my work globally across Canada, the US, Europe, 
and Australia. Wow. I'm hoping that it will contribute something to the conversation. But yeah, always in love with new inspirational projects and new theoretical ideas to incorporate into my work. Wow, there's few fabulous recommendations there. And I'm sure that when that book comes out, did you say that was in July this year? Yeah, July of this year with Routledge, yeah. Excellent. That's fantastic. I'm sure, Dr. Riga, that's going to contribute so much more to the space and people will have an amazing time reading through and gaining some more insight there. And all of the books, resources, entrepreneurs, organizations that you've mentioned today throughout our interview, they'll all be linked in at the end of the article. So once people have listened to our conversation or how to read through the transcript, They'll be able to click on through, check those all out and just absorb even more information and insights. Unfortunately, however, that does bring us to the end of our interview today. And I just want to say, Dr. Riga, on behalf of the Impact Room team, thank you so much for making the time to share your insights with us so generously. I know that I've learned so much just through preparing for this interview, let alone speaking with you today about this space of inclusivity. It's really invaluable and I can't wait to see what you get up to in the future. So thank you so much and all the best. Thank you, Indu. It's been a complete pleasure. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below. And remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter. Thank you.